Hello, and welcome to One World, One Health, with the latest ideas to improve the health of our planet and its people. I'm Maggie Fox. Our planet and all of us are battling problems such as pollution, climate change, and new and re-emerging infectious diseases, and they're all linked. This podcast is brought to you by the One Health Trust, with bite-sized insights into ways to help. There's nothing like being prepared, especially if you know something is coming. The likelihood of another pandemic is just about 100%, so why not be ready for it? Dr. Jesse Goodman has spent his career trying to get the world ready for all sorts of awful things, from the next flu pandemic to the growing threat of drug-resistant superbugs. Dr. Goodman is now the director of the Center on Medical Product Access, Safety, and Stewardship, or COMPASS, at Georgetown University. He's also an infectious diseases physician at Georgetown and the Veterans Administration Hospital. He was chief scientist of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, helped lead the response against the 2009 H1N1 flu pandemic, and he co-chaired a task force on antimicrobial resistance, which produced an action plan to fight superbugs. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. It's really a pleasure to be with you today. That's a lot of planning you did. As a result, of course, the nation and the world have been perfectly ready for every pandemic, every disaster, and nothing bad's happened. Just kidding. Those things don't always go as planned, right? No, they don't. I think it's safe to say that no matter what you expected to happen, will not happen exactly the way you expected, and you'll be thrown new uh, challenges. You were involved in preparations for a pandemic long before COVID ever hit, but your carefully thought-out game plan got thrown out the window when the pandemic did come. Looking back, how do you feel like things went? You know, I think it was overall a very difficult and disappointing response that could have been much better. I'd say, first of all, uh, in fairness, it was a terrible pandemic, a terrible virus. And I don't think from day one, it was likely that it was going to be fully contained. So I think it was a global public health disaster, but we did not respond to it very well. If you look at some of the statistics, our country had some of the worst uh, outcomes. So, and, and all of us who lived through this saw the confusion and politicization and and so many of the road bumps that occurred that were necessary. I, you know, a positive thing was how quickly vaccines were developed. A lot of that was the result of those past investments in pandemic preparedness. But so that was good. How that was communicated even about vaccines was faulted. And then much of the rest of the response was very problematic. And I think many lives were lost uh, that didn't have to be. And I also feel like we're now suffering from uh, a crisis in confidence in public health and public health leadership that was, you know, really could have been uh, much reduced. That crisis in confidence, that was something you had plan to prevent as part of the pandemic preparations. Can you tell us about some of the things that maybe were planned for and should have been done and didn't get done? I think a very big part of what we could have done so much better in COVID was communication and coordination, these very simple sounding things that are quite hard to do. You know, I was reflecting on this a little bit this morning before we talked, and I remember the, I, you know, I think it was a, it, there's a little bit like the boy who cried wolf. I think the public, uh, everybody, experts, even very esteemed people, uh, we've had alert after alert. Uh, you know, we had the Ebola outbreak, which there were 
or predictions of millions of deaths and things like that, uh, the, you know, the earlier Ebola outbreak. And I think, you know, one of the things that's overlooked a little is that early on in this, when we first started seeing the cases, and I remember sitting there and talking to colleagues and family and uh, other leaders and physicians and saying, you know, I'm actually really, really worried about this, okay? And yet, even people I respect tremendously uh, in the public sphere were saying, oh, this is, you know, at worst, no worse than influenza. So we had a tendency toward denial uh, that went on early and that at a time when these emergency plans should have been put in place and steps being taken uh, were out there and contributed to things being done very slowly. And, you know, one of the things I do know, uh, because of personal and professional context, for example, was in January, the international organization, uh, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, be right away, within days of this virus being noted in China, began uh, reaching out to vaccine manufacturers and beginning to solicit requests for funding. We look at Operation Warp Speed as a big success, but that only started funding these efforts in May. So I think there, in net, there were three to four months of time that could have been gained if we had been very forward-leaning in the response, rather than sort of having this collective dis- de- uh, denial. The other thing that contributed to that, that was a big feature of this pandemic, was its politicization. So among the very people early on in denial were the president of the United States and his closest aides. And if you'll remember this famous press conference where President Trump said, you know, it's going to zero, you know, there's five cases here, there's this. And I remember hearing that and saying, you know, oh, my God. I think there were delays in leaning forward. And for example, the whole response structure we had put into place would have called for getting things like PPE, ventilators, diagnostic testing ready, not just leaving it to the private sector or one group, but having a coordinated effort and having backup plans in the event of failure. You you put that into place. It does take effort. It does take money. And if a month later there hadn't been a real pandemic, maybe you overreacted. But that's what you do. You try to prepare for the worst, you know, while you hope for the best. But instead, they prepared for the best and they lost precious time with that. Back in the 1990s, you were already planning for disasters. And when was the arrival of antimicrobial resistance or AMR? It's what some people call drug-resistant superbugs. You had a plan ready to go and then something happened. It was 9-11 and it threw everything off track. Tell us a little bit about that planning. Antimicrobial resistance is really interesting, and it shares many similarities with the pandemic. And I'd say one of the biggest ones is that, at least initially, it seems theoretical. It doesn't seem real to people. So right now, people get surgery, they get transplants, they get a strep throat, they get generally an eye infection or something, and we have antibiotics that treat those things, and they go into the hospital expecting that if an infectious complication develops, treatment's going to work. But what we're talking about in antimicrobial resistance is the slow development and spread of genes and other things that make common infections resistant to antibiotics. And where right now it doesn't seem real, but it could suddenly become very real. And even right now, there's a considerable burden of disease, you know, that as a clinician, I see all the time. 
So we got together all the agency leaderships across the government. We engaged the public, the private sector, those who potentially develop new medicines and uh, for resistant organisms. And we came up with a good roadmap for how we make progress in the future. But it did require public sector investment. And then when 9-11 came along, all that investment went into national security. And the portion of that that went into public health It wasn't that it was misspent, but it was focused on specific threats like anthrax and smallpox, et cetera, but the longer term was ignored. That gets to that point of we need longer term commitments. You know, we need like five-year budget plans. Can you imagine in the private sector if you just said, we're just going to worry about the next six months and invest in that? It would be, you know, and then the minute something else comes along, we'll just completely change course. A pandemic affects everybody, and it's not just government agencies that are involved. We're now seeing some long-term effects. Can you talk about where planning can do a better job in including everybody who's affected? It's not just all a public health and medical response. It's also these other impacts on society. So I don't think there had been been much thinking at all, maybe zero, about what the implications of some of the social steps that had to be taken on distancing, like school closures, what the implications were for people's jobs, employment, economic welfare of these work closures, how the sick leave system discouraged people from staying home when they're sick. Um, So I think we learned a lot, hopefully, about the social impacts of responding that to a public health emergency, and particularly a long ongoing one like COVID, where we need to be prepared for those impacts or, you know, and this is one where I think public health can't act alone because if public health just says, yeah, well, this is horrible outbreak. We need to control the spread. So you're going to close schools. What's appropriate in early days when, you know, you're trying to, like was said, bend the curve so we don't have a complete social meltdown may be very different from what's appropriate six months into it when these educational impacts and social impacts that may in some ways be as important as the public health impacts and need to be balanced. So you can't let the business community or the education community alone run the response, but you also can't just say it's only a public health response because the social impacts are so broad. I remember sitting in some of those preparations when they were including journalists because communication was part of it. And when COVID hit, I was thinking, oh, my God, there's all these people. They're ready. They know what to do. And I'm sure, you know, you're one of them. There must be this feeling of deflation. Like, we were ready. We knew what to do. We knew how to work together. And I think at this point, rather than blaming X, Y, or Z, we have to understand that those same conditions could occur again. And how can we do uh, better next time? And I think we can do that. I think we can build on the experience and do that. But I don't think we can be uh, naive that just sort of experts knowing what to do and political attention in 2023 can translate to long-term improvements. And there needs to be a lot of thought of not only how do you put plans in place, but how do you make sure they're resourced? How do you make sure it's not just the U.S., but it's globally? And how do you make sure that the integrity of the process is respected? And I don't think we do that just by saying it. We have to think about structures. 
how do you protect FDA and regulatory agencies from undue pressure so that they can make the best decisions? So there's a lot of devil in the details. And unless we pay attention to being prepared for the details, the same natural forces that lead people astray during emergencies, whether they're politics or emotion, uh, will come into play again. And one of the advantages of having more than one agency or sector in the room at the same time is you're hearing all the perspectives and discouraging groupthink. And a lot of that is about good leadership. One of the things I'd like to think about is how can we prevent this problem? We need that long-term funding, I said. We also need reserves, both in the U.S. and globally, that are significant amounts of funding that in an emergency can be flexibly accessed by public health authorities to do what needs to be done. So you don't have to go to Congress on day one and have this debate. But if the public health infrastructure in the U.S. says this is an emergency, there's a pot of several billion dollars to get this going. And I think the same is true globally. The global community could not compete for vaccines against the ability of the U.S. and Western Europe to buy them. But instead, there needs to be a pandemic fund and billions of dollars put aside that can be used in emergency so that anybody can purchase these vaccines. And that will help drive the market, too. So it's not like they're just competing for the same vaccines. It will help ensure more equity. So those are the kind of things that really ahead of time can be done, should be done. There are a lot of people interested in it, but the political leadership needs to come along and do it. And of course, when something like COVID has been so politicized, now you have this whole, you know, anti-vaccine stuff, the kind of denial has come back that this could be a real problem. And that lack of faith I talked about earlier that, you know, really leads to a challenge in how we accomplish this. But I still feel somewhat optimistic that we have a window in time where the world and the U.S. can improve our preparedness. But it, it needs to be done in a longer term and coordinated way. That was terrific. Thank you. Sure. My pleasure. Take care, Nick. If you like this podcast, which is brought to you by the One Health Trust, please share it by email or social media and let us know what else you'd like to hear about at OWOH at OneHealthTrust.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to One World, One Health, brought to you by the One Health Trust. I'm Ramanan Lakshminarayan, founder and president of the One Health Trust. You can subscribe to One World, One Health on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at One Health Trust, One Word, for updates on One World, One Health, and the latest in research on One Health issues like drug resistance, disease spillovers, and the social determinants of health. Finally, please do consider donating to the One Health Trust to support this podcast and other initiatives and research that help us promote health and well-being worldwide. Until next time.